and welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast for those who want to hear from those making Tulsa a more resilient place, who want to learn how they can help, and for my fellow nonprofit warriors out there. I am your chief philanthropod, Jesse Lorch. And I'm your Vice Admiral Philanthropod, Chris Miller. Today our guest is Gary Peluso-Verdant, Director of the Center for Religion and Public Life at Phillips Theological Seminary, the winner of the Nancy Day Spirit Award from OCCJ, and the host of the Committing Faith in Public podcast. Today we talk to Gary about history and the intersection of politics and religion, what it means to commit faith in public, and the evolution of the Trialogue series into one from many. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast anywhere podcasts can be found, but more importantly, Share with your friends and family. Podcasts grow mostly by word of mouth. Thank you and enjoy. We are very excited to have Gary on the podcast today. Hello, Gary. Hi. How are you? I'm great. So for the people listening, one of the programs that you've been heavily involved in is the Oklahoma Center for Community and Justice Trialogue Series, mm-hmm. which uh, for... Um, about two years, I was also involved in, which it, normally it was a series of programs, three weekends in February around a common theme, trying to bring people together to sort of discuss and learn amongst each other. Mm-hmm. And that program has been going on for how long? Oh, over 30 years now. Over 30 um, years. And the, and the try has been Jews, Catholics, I mean, I'm sorry, Jews, Christians, and Muslims mm-hmm. uh, is the try. So the, so the Abrahamic faiths. So think about that. 30 years ago, Muslims is wow. part of this in Tulsa. That's yeah. one of the things that's so surprising for people outside of Tulsa is mm-hmm. you have this kind of interfaith community in the buckle of the Bible Belt? Yes, exactly. And maybe because of the buckle of the Bible Belt, we really know how much we rely on each other, mm-hmm. uh, those of us who have this kind of civic good orientation. This year, OCCJ and you are trying to do something new. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us about how you're going to reshape Trialogue? Sure. So as uh, OCCJ has changed over the years from a, you know, it started as the National Conference of Christians and Jews, and and then the the whole national scene changed to more of the community and justice focus, but with a lot of religious participation still. Well, as as the as who participates in the work of social justice, inclusion, diversity, positive, and the like. So OCCJ is trying to broaden its core constituency, which does include people who are do not identify as people of faith, but definitely people who are committed to these kinds of common good issues. And so uh, a few years back, I was approached by some OCCJ staff that, you know, could you help us with Trialogue to make it reflect more of that diverse constituency? And so we've tried over the last few years to do that with, with some success and some, I would say, some, some of it hasn't been all that successful. It's sometimes hard when you make change not to lose some of your core constituents, which happens to be especially Christians and Unitarians of a certain age. I'd be on the younger side of that. I'm, on 60, <laughs> I'm 64 and all. And plus also, it was a very important time for the Muslim community because what Trialogue has always tried to do is, is create conversations in, in the form of panels that would advance understanding from a religious point of view, from a social point of view, and this was a very important part of, especially in post-9-11 America, for uh, Muslims in the Tulsa community to have a place where 
Muslims could be addressing persons who are not Muslims about what is what they understand to be the core of Islam, which is quite mm-hmm. different from lots of media depictions. And for some of our conservative Christian brothers and sisters in the state, you know, Islam is not seen as a legitimate religion, where a different point of view can be done. So that was that was what Trialogue was in our attempt to expand. We didn't really feel like we were able to break out of the come for three weeks, two hours at a time and all. And at the same time, I had completed my work as president at Phillips Seminary, had been granted a sabbatical during which I was able to retool in a direction that I've been wanting to move for some time, which is about how we as people of faith show up in public life, and in particular emphasizing those of us who have more progressive values around justice, inclusion, social compassion, and the like. It occurred to me during the time of my sabbatical, as I was doing really pretty extensive reading, the modern history, especially post-World War II, that I kind of boil down to how in the U.S. the ecumenical mainline Christianity was replaced by evangelical and even fundamentalist Christianity as providing the, some of the core stories for how the nation helps define itself. And in that transition, which started around 1979 with the, I mean, overtly in 79 with the formation of the Moral Majority, It occurred to me as I graduated seminary in 1981 that for the entirety of my adult life, Christianity in the U.S. has come to be redefined by what the Christian right has done. And when I talk about the Christian right, it's always really, I mean, I always need to say that's not all evangelicals, it's not all Pentecostals, it's not all fundamentalists, but it's a subset of those allied with the kind of right-wing politics. I won't even call it Republican politics anymore, since what we see going on right now bears little resemblance to anything that I understood as what the Republican Party stood for. But all this is to say, I became more and more chagrined, embarrassed, and and angry at what was passing as Christianity in public life. And for people of faith on a more progressive side, who want to contribute to the e pluribus unum, to the many, but also to build the common ground of the oneness and see ourselves as playing well in the sandbox of American public life, focusing on understanding common work, helping to borrow that great term that we, in fact, Jesse and I talked about earlier, tikkun olam from Judaism, to heal the world, to repair the world. This is common work together. So knowing that, on the one hand, Trialogue needed a different format. Coming out of my own personal state where I was at with my scholarship and where I was now heading with the, with the seminary's blessing in terms of trying to start a center for religion and public life, I thought, well, let's see if we can put together something that's different. And so I ran into a, a book by a former Obama staffer by the name of Eric Liu, called Become America, which was, a, which was, I think, 18 or 19, what he called civic sermons, done over the course of a year and a half on a once-a-month basis, mostly out of Seattle, where he put together a secular version of a worship service after the November 16, uh, the 2016 election, for people of progressive mindset to gather and be taught civics. I mean, he said, he said the worship format looks like a great format for 
for things other than necessarily for religious reasons. You could use it for other, for other purposes. So uh, while what we're doing is not a civic Saturday, which is, which is what he called what he's doing, I said, well, how would that translate to Tulsa? We know we have a strong interfaith community here. I know a bunch of leaders who want to see a different America from the direction we're headed in under the current administration and, and with, the, with, the, with the basic narrative framework that's been provided by the Christian right for the last 40 years or, or so. So we said, what could we do? Well, let's, let's try to do, put together a, a monthly service. I think we're going to alternate it between uh, a weekend afternoon and maybe a midweek time type gathering. Keep it to about 45 minutes. Have people gather some way of, of talking to each other. Maybe even, you know, with a question like, what do you know about how your ancestors got here? Which there are very, you know, there are those who came over a land bridge 20,000 years ago. And there are those who came via the Middle Passage. And there are those who came on ships, boats, you know, planes, walked. There are a variety of ways that people, mm-hmm. people got here. And that's all part of our stories. And we're all part of America. So introduce each other some, have some, some singing have a, a performance or two. The, the folks at the Woody Guthrie Center have signed on. They're part of our committee. So we're hoping to get some good musical talent in, in these services too. And then, then to listen to one of our interfaith who can speak on the topic, here's the America I want to live in, mm-hmm. and here's how my faith informs that. So many people are led to believe that the only way that Faith informs anything today is from a conservative and and who we exclude point of view. There's a whole that, lot that actually really. brings up specifically yeah. a question because talking to a lot of people who have either drifted away from their faith yes. or never had faith, or especially with regards to Christianity, but but Islam as well. To your point, see it as a conservative thing, right and. So they never come back because whether it was a bad experience or just generally everything they've seen has said that religion is conservative. So right. how, how do you battle through that? How do you get people who feel that way to come to these services and come to these discussions? It's a really fair and important question. Mm-hmm. And even in our first phone call with the committee, this, this came up because we're trying to find a way, and I'm not sure we're there yet. Mm-hmm. For both saying this is we we're, what we're doing here is rooted in faith, and that faith is is the variety of faiths in the Tulsa area, which is you know again a lot more diverse than a lot of folks think. Mm-hmm. But we don't want to exclude those people who are the the nuns who are who have now the one of the largest single constituency groups in the United States is for people who do not profess any religion, mm-hmm. but they also have a strong civic sense, mm-hmm. you know, who, who think that our social fabric's a little thin and, and there could be more compassion, justice, love, and the like. But I want people, specifically, I gotta say, I, I want people of faith to see this as a, as a place for them, but not exclude mm-hmm. those who don't. So exactly what our languages talk about that, I gotta say, we're not quite there yet. Right. But it's a really super important question these days. Mm-hmm. 
Well, the, the, that comes up when, when we had um, Moises on the podcast, which hopefully that episode airs before this one. We, we talked about how in that one, how people from, you know, who would label themselves as LGBTQ+, plus, how they do, do not feel connected to right. whatever faith they were either raised in or that they've run into. And how when we're talking, when, when we say the word interfaith, what we mean is diverse. We want mm-hmm. people from all different kinds of life to come together and just enjoy each other's company and learn from each other. But when you do that from a religious standpoint, you're already turning off that large population. So like, it's it, the words we use are incredibly important there. Right. I mean, and so we've talked about, so is, is the word spiritual rather than religious? Because in mm-hmm. spiritual, at least it gives it the, the, the possibility that you're not talking about an organized religion, mm-hmm. but you are talking about there is a deeper purpose, there is a higher purpose, there's something, there's something important here which is not limited to us. Right. And I think there are a lot of people, even a lot of Christians, who consider themselves Christian but do not attend services anymore because they have lost, you know, faith in organized religions, not in their religion. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Sure. Sure. They're they're in fact right, the the they're the nuns and the duns. Uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, somewhat, somewhat the duns, but there's also there's a residual there, mm-hmm. and there's the, the, and and there are some people who have left their faith communities because they didn't see how what the faith community was up to mm-hmm. was relating to their everyday lives. Right. One of the concerns I have and have had for a long time is that. You know, as, th- as this nation moves towards 2040, 2042, 2044, whatever the year actually will be, when we become a no-majority nation mm-hmm. in terms of racial ethnic, how are we preparing for that? You know, the current direction of the, administra- of the, of the administration in Washington, and unfortunately, you know, a fair number of folks in our state, is not helping mm-hmm. us prepare for that. It seems to be you know how can white people hang on to their our power mm-hmm. um, past the time when we're no longer have can can just in a fair way mm-hmm. uh, have enough votes to outvote everybody else? Right. That's a huge problem, and it's one that especially for people of faith um, who believe in an, in a creator mm-hmm. who made us all and made us all diverse and made us all in some way in the image of God. And with human dignity, this white supremacist way of being is just antithetical to that. Mm-hmm. So how do we actually embrace the fullness of who God created us to be? That would be the, my faith-based way of talking mm-hmm. about it. Tie into American history itself. American history has been a struggle between who is it that is... Like, so you know, the American Revolution breaking away from a, a system of kings and queens and one faith to a country of multiple faiths, but with white Christians still being in charge and then not only them in fighting amongst themselves, but deciding to enslave an entire race of people to not necessarily be open to smaller religions like that vein runs through American history as as well as the Mm -hmm. good part of trying to be a, a from, from many one country idea. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, kind of along those lines, how, how do you also bring in, the other side, the, you know, that, that conservative religious group that, that some of which aren't always open to learning about other religions or being open to, to having those discussions. 
Right. So there are different forums for different things. Mm-hmm. And since we've not done one of these services yet, first one will be February 2nd. I don't know yet right. as as to who will who will come and who will who will respond to the invitation. Mm-hmm. Because the invitation's going to be this this service is for people who are have a moral and sp- or moral and or spiritual grounding. Mm-hmm. That leads them to say that the United States needs to embody more of, of, of our original motto of out of many, one. Mm-hmm. And that we're concerned that the current direction of the country is is moving in the wrong uh, the wrong direction regarding all of this. So if you're interested in, in, in getting being part of a group of people who can celebrate both the manyness and 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 move towards the oneness. Mm-hmm the services for you. So that's kind of a self-selecting group. And and frankly, one of the things that's most difficult in in both the political and religious world, which of course overlap, is we have what I what appears to be the philosopher's term, incommensurate merit narratives, meaning that there's you know, there isn't common ground between these two things. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a real concern. You know, the, 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 the narrative of this country being the world's greatest and of, and it's just been all positives. And if America, you know, if it's right because America does it mm-hmm. sort of thing versus we have all kinds of wonderful principles that were embedded in the founding of this country, but we've never lived up to that fully. Mm-hmm. And for African Americans, this is not the promised land. This 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 started out as Egypt, mm-hmm. another kind of captivity, and we're still looking for that true Exodus event. For Native Americans, they'd say, "Well, if we read you, if we read ourselves in your biblical story at all, it's we're the Canaanites who got who got taken over." Mm-hmm. So, but that's all we need to be able to find as a, as a people. If we're going to actually be a nation, we need to find some way of of all those stories being out there together rather than no 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 we can't tell your story or or your story it's it's, it's you're asking for special rights and or, mm-hmm. or, or or those kinds of things and that's why i think you see so many people who say i'm not included in the story you're telling right and that's a that's a huge problem for us as mm-hmm. a nation and i think as a people of faith that also ought to trouble us right right i mean it feels like that it would take some serious moral courage of some religious leaders within those groups to to step forward and say i'm i'm going to be open to these types of discussions for you know the pop their their congregation to follow yes yeah morally absolutely courageous moral leadership Mm -hmm. explain this moral leadership to me i don't think i've seen it recently (laughs) Um, (laughs) so you are you are now the director of the center for public life at Phillips Theological Seminary. So w- when you say Center for Public Life, what what does that mean? Right. So it's Center for Religion and Public Life. Mm. So it's, it's that makes specifically more about religion in public life. Right. I like I, I love the phrase that one of my professors at the University of Chicago used to use of of people committing faith in public. And I I look at it as okay, we as people of faith, we're raised within on the one hand within various kinds of religious congregations. And for some folks, their faith is identified pretty much with that space. But then there are a whole lot of us who are also raised to think that, well, your faith isn't just a vertical thing between you and your creator. 
your faith also has this horizontal component for how we act in the world. And it's not just about, even though it is, it includes how I act within my family, how I act in my personal and private relationships. This also has to do with how I show up in public, the politics I embrace, the way I treat people who disagree with me, the way you treat people like, like for Jesus, you know, Jesus, Jesus said, not so much the way you treat your friends, but how do you treat the people who, who oppose you? Mm-hmm. That's, when, that's when the courageous part come, comes in. So, so we're, we're trying to look at how are we showing up as people of faith in public? And again, to go back to my narrative from a moment ago, for the last 40 years, the American public space has been dominated by the Christian nationalist religious right. That is not the set of narratives and who belongs and the moral order and the like that I see is going to help this nation moving forward. And it's not the Christianity that, or the, the kind of faithful witness that I'd like to see. So how do we amplify the voices of those doing something good and interesting? Uh, Chris, earlier you talked about American Heretics, the, mm-hmm. the movie. I mean, what that does is similar to what I hope the center would be able to do. People, people watch American Heretics and those, that kind of religion exists in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, liberal religion exists in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, progressive values also exist in Oklahoma. We have people doing the work right now. Some people who are exercising that courageous moral leadership. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this Christmas season, it's all about a United Methodist congregation in Claremont, California that has put each of the members of the Holy Family yeah, that, yeah, in cages. Like, yeah. it's, it's taking it up a notch from uh, Chris's thing. Yes. Yeah. Right. And Fellowship Congregational Church here in Tulsa mm-hmm. was, was a national focus last year right. with stories in USA Today and New York Times and the like. That's courageous moral leadership. Mm-hmm. When I, I want to make sure yeah. that those stories get heard. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think for a lot of people, especially people who aren't religious, when they hear, you know, public acts of faith, they, they assume that means that somebody's going to come and try to convert them. I assume that's, that's not, when you th- say public acts of faith, that's not the story you're telling. No, right. So not every religion uh, tries to convert everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and not every version of Christianity tries to convert everybody. I mean, there's, there's, there is this thing that's really important called understanding. Right. And there is a point of view in each of our religions has at least access to, not all of us do it, where we think, where we believe the diversity of religions goes along with the diversity of peoples. And this is going to be this way until the mm-hmm. end of time. We don't, some of us don't expect Jesus to return and for history to come to an end. Some of us think, well, eventually either we're going to burn the planet out or this, you know, some billions of years from now, the sun's going to supernova and take out the first three planets. But so in the meantime, how are we going to live with each other? Right. And there's plenty of space for common ground. I mean, it's starting with the Abrahamic religion, since we have we have common narratives, we have common values, we have common story, you know, common stories, common moral orders, and the like. So there's an awful lot we could work on, especially in this realm of compassion and justice for how society is organized and how we care for one another, how we define who our neighbor is and how we treat neighbors. There's so much work that can be done together that can make for a better life, a a better flourishing for a larger part of our communities. What are your thoughts on, I was reading an article, I can't, it was a couple months ago, but it was talking about sort of the the falsehood that is the term Judeo-Christian background. When when that term is used, usually by 
those on the conservative side, they are referring to something that is not actually Judeo-Christian at all. Like that, that term does not describe the thing people think it describes. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm nodding my head here. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm agreeing. This is a construction post-World War II, especially in the, from the Eisenhower administration kind mm-hmm. of timing on as, as the, the kind of contrast was, are you sectarian or are you more interreligious or ecumenical uh, or the like? And if you were just of one thing, mm-hmm. then you were considered sectarians. But if you could broaden it, then, you know, to Judeo-Christian and kind of inventing a term which was predominantly Christian, with the only proviso to that is there was a book written in 1955 by a Jewish sociologist by the name of Will Herberg called Protestant Catholic Jew, where he said, these are the three ways of being American. It's not quite a melting pot. But it sorts into these three categories. Mm. There's a Protestant way, a Catholic way, a Jewish way mm-hmm. of being American. But they share this kind of common faith in faith, a belief in the goodness of America, and a basic personal morality. And so on that, there was sort of a Judeo-Christian sort of a sort of consensus. Sort of a consensus. But it was it was probably more a consensus amongst uh borrow a term from current East Coast liberals <laughs> <laughs> than it was really what played out in the heart of the country or in in a, a lot of the places where folks didn't do much mixing. Well and it's I mean, even trying to intersect groups, it's still by its nature very exclusionary. Coming across as saying this, you mentioned this is the way to be American, but it also sounds like it's saying that these are the people that have a moral core and implying that other groups don't. Yes. You know, that Islam, Buddhist, Hindu, all these other religions don't have a moral core to them as well. Right. Well, the other thing, I mean... That was that was very much true in, in that what you just said is is true in that era and a critique of the book, especially as it comes to African Americans mm-hmm. who are almost invisible in what he wrote. Right. However, it's also the case that because uh, U.S. immigration law was so restrictive between 1924 and 1965. In fact, in 1955, there weren't all that many of any other faith mm-hmm. group here. And while Muslims have been here since, well, you could argue from the first slaving ships that came over and then in New Netherlands, what became New York City, there was a prominent Muslim came over uh, fairly, I mean, very, very early mm-hmm. in the nation's history. So Muslims have always been around, not in numbers like they have been since 1965. So, gotcha. so in that way, no, it was, it was like everybody else. It was, if you weren't, if you weren't either some version of Christian or Jewish, you were really exotic. Gotcha. Well, and something that's always inter- inter- interested me is that Judaism and Islam, you know, in our holiest of books, actually have systems of government built into them, a way of how to run a, 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 a city, a state, a country as that, as that faith, as government. Well, the Bible does not. And yet the moral majority type of Christianity you're talking about is Christianity getting involved in government when specifically in the Bible it talks about not getting involved in government. And I was I find this dynamic fascinating because like Judaism has very gone very much gone the other way because we have not been, other than the state of Israel recently, have not ever actually been in charge of the place we lived. So that government part of of 
Judaism sort of just disappeared. Like American Judaism doesn't have any of those components in in them. Right. Islam too has a system of how things are supposed to run, mm-hmm. which is you know Oklahoma. One one of the many times Oklahoma would come up when I was living in Boston was the Sharia, the Sharia, law. The Sharia law scare, and I was <laughs> yeah. just like, "Come on, guys, please." Which you know we we had a speaker at one of the last open tables who was talking about how like that's not a thing. Like it's, it's a thing, right? Yeah. Right. First of all, Sharia law is like saying ATM machine, but um, <laughs> Sharia means law, but. So, like, where where did the idea of sort of a Judeo-Christian, a Christian nation come from, where Christianity, uh, at least originally, seemed to try to separate those two? Yes. I, I'm going to start out with a, with a line from another American religious historian, Sidney Mead, who said that each of the denominations or communions came to the United States to worship in their own way and persecute in their own way. <laughs> <laughs> that's very that, accurate yeah that that in fact even during revolutionary times the there were only a few religious leaders who supported the separation of church and state and what's surprises some people today and they were all baptists <laughs> right because it was the original baptist whether it was roger williams or john leland who are the two of the better known ones today they said that that if the state is involved with the church, it will corrupt the church. They were less worried about the corruption of the state by the church, but they were pretty positive that that if 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 the if you give the state its way with your religion, they the the, the state would make it bend to their will. Hmm. Uh, hear that? I want everybody to really hear yeah. that. Yeah, right. Because we're we're seeing that absolutely at mm-hmm. the present time. Well, and wasn't there also a strand where they were worried it was not going to be their religion that was adopted as the, it was a sort of, we're not going to compete on what the national faith of America is going to be because we don't want any one of us to win said competition. I always got that sort of sense from it where there were so many Christian denominations here and they were like, well, we all want to do our own thing. So let's not, let's not do that. Right. And, and you know, the, 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 the federal constitution didn't apply to the states when it came to religion mm-hmm. at first, and that some even present Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is still not sure that the First Amendment applies to states. I would like to hear uh, him say that, though. Uh, <laughs> um, it would be great if he did. So you could have state establishments, and they did. State establishments went into the 19th, earlier part of the 19th century, mm-hmm. other than places like Pennsylvania that said, we're not going to establish anybody here and and so you'd have these you know correspondences back and forth between james madison and i think it was thomas jefferson it's like oh you know you're in pennsylvania right now you're able to breathe the you know the air of freedom while here in virginia we're trying to we're trying to you know uh, get the 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 jefferson's uh first try for getting uh, a religious freedom law passed Mm -hmm. in virginia to disestablish the anglican church so there were church establishments along the way. I think one of the one of the interesting pieces of American history is how the the Puritan narrative comes to dominate when it comes to this particular discussion mm-hmm. about constructing a Christian republic here, and and in today's Christian theological terms, the Christian nationalists are really dominated by a very conservative kind of Calvinism, which is what the Puritans also were, that claims that, well, we were actually founded as a Christian nation. 
it was a mistake not to put God in the Constitution. Fact is, you read the con- they, what they would say is you read the Constitution in light of the Declaration, and the Declaration had uh, nature and nature's God in it, and and divinely created rights. That so the government doesn't give rights; the Creator is given the rights. And this is this has to be a Christian nation. So they play that out, and and what also gets played out, however, is is it goes goes back to the Civil War, and this also comes to your question, uh, Jesse, about uh, kind of faith in public life kinds of things. So during the Civil War, the rhetoric on both the North and the South from the pulpits got got raised higher and higher about God being on our side. Mm-hmm. And and then the, the Confederacy or the Union declaring days of fasting hmm. as well as days of Thanksgiving and feasting. Hmm. You know, if they lost a battle, it's like declare a national fast. It must be that we don't, you know, we did we did something wrong. There's still there's sin in in us and if if we were really faithful and righteous, we'd be winning these battles because God is definitely on our side, which which they each very much felt. However, on the issue of slavery per se, the northern pulpits became more and more adamant as the war went on. They didn't start this way, but as the war went on, became more and more adamant that the abolition of slavery was a just cause. Whereas the South said it's an economic, the Southern preacher said this is an economic matter that the church should not be touching. Or they actually said, well, you know, the uh, Bible, in the Bible, Noah's son Ham was, was punished for, for seeing his father's nakedness and reporting it to his brothers. And Ham is the father of the Hamitic peoples, which according to the Bible is then is the people in Africa. So, so all Africans carry the curse of Ham, and they they were supposed to be enslaved. So, either you had it they were supposed to be enslaved, or you had it that, or, or, or and that this is an economic matter, and the pulpit ought not to touch that. Mm-hmm. And so, historians talk about there being now having developed a two party system in American Protestantism. Mm. One that said the pulpit has to include some political matters, and the other said this is only a matter of personal faith between you and God. And you still see that two-party system mm-hmm. playing out a lot. Interesting. I mean, when, when, when Jerry Falwell, well-known now for having founded one of the founders of the Moral Majority, in about 1963, it was 63 or 64, he preached what became a very famous sermon that said Christians ought not to be involved in politics. Preachers, you need to get back into your pulpits and back into your prayer rooms. And he was really, it was really a pointed sermon at Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. saying, you don't belong in public. You know, it's convert, you're going to convert people in their heart one at a time, and if you convert people, racism will fall away. Even like... When you first started, I was like, man, he really took a turn. And then by the end of it, I'm like, oh, it was it was still the same thing. It wasn't his gospel that, that was being preached in public. So he didn't want gospel preached in public. Well, I mean, the especially in the in the South, African-American churches were the birth of a lot of their political movements, yeah. the forefront of the civil right. rights movements right. and stuff like that. So there were a lot of white churches that at that time decided that to speak out in general, well, churches should not be political. 
wasn't because they didn't believe churches should be political. It was that they didn't believe that black churches should be political. Right. When, when, when people say, I want to keep politics out of church, I mm-hmm. mean, I think what they're saying is, is one of two things. One is, is politics brings conflict. Mm-hmm. It brings a different set of art rules about arguing, and we don't need any of that here because religious congregations are kind of fragile. Uh, a lot of them are these days, and we don't need more conflict. But the other thing that I hear very often in that is, is we say, I don't want to be political or, or don't politicize that. It means I don't want that to change. Mm-hmm. Because, because raising the politics of something is really raising the question as to why it is, what it is right now, who does this narrative serve, who belongs and who doesn't belong, how is this neighbor, I mean, how is this, how is this piece, this people, these persons included in in the national covenant or not those are the questions being raised when somebody says let's this needs to become political mm-hmm. you know let's take gun you know gun violence you know don't make don't make politics out of it when when a school is shot up all right well what does that mean it means i don't want to talk about that issue mm-hmm. you know to, politic- to politicize it means let's move towards some kind of change right so you have your, your own podcast called uh, Committing Faith in Public. Mm-hmm. Great title. What is the goal you're trying to get out of the people you interview? Are you trying to, when you say committing faith in public, what is the sort of broadest way someone who maybe isn't a religious leader can co- commit faith in public? So what I'm trying to do with, with, with the podcast is to highlight stories that might go unreported. We all know there are, there's one religion reporter, full-time professional religion reporter in Oklahoma now, and she's at the Oklahoman. We have none here in Tulsa. And stories from those of us in the more uh, progressively leaning communities or communities with some progressive values have always been fewer than the biggest, you know, the biggest churches that have been around here. So finding ways to uh, tell those stories and amplify those voices. And I think both to, uh, so that we can maybe build a larger audience who might be interested and, and is aware, but also to encourage. And I love the word encourage, you know, to bring courage to or to, you know, put courage in. I, you know, a lot of times you hear, oh, I couldn't say that in church or I couldn't, I couldn't do this in, at, at the mosque or I couldn't do this in synagogue and the like. Couldn't, couldn't be said, all right, let's challenge that a little bit by mm-hmm. here's some people who uh, we talked earlier about moral leadership or moral courage in our leadership who are exercising that. Maybe then if we tell those stories and like, how did that come to be? How can, and, and the, with the appreciative inquiry approach of rather than everything's being problematized, it's the cool, why did that work so well? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how could we have more of that? So that's the reason why I'm, I'm I'm telling the stories, and so I hope that people listening to it will then find encouragement to find ways to plug in to their communities, whether those be faith communities or other places that can influence our society for something much more positive than again the almost scorched earth policies that we are are all confronted with today. We are we are on the eve of the year 2020 and the next presidential election. So for the listeners of Pod for Good, what advice would you give them when they inevitably find themselves in a argument with someone that's a, that's about 
politics and it's about an issue, but it's really about something bigger. It's, it's, it's always going to be about what they want their version of America to be, right? What advice would you give to someone to maybe approach those conversations and those arguments differently? One would be is, is to listen simply for understanding. Start, start there. Can you are, you know, the, the basics of any kind of couples counseling, <laughs> can you articulate back to the person what they're saying in a way that they feel understood and heard? It, and, and yes, there's always limits to this, right? I mean, somebody could say something that's so offensive or so disgusting or so threatening that it's, you need to break that off that conversation, that relationship. So let's say, I mean, your question would have to be premised on this safe enough place to be able to do this. I don't think there's going to be any real threat to me by pursuing this conversation. So if you could first try to, towards understanding. And then second, I'm, I'm always curious if we can, you know, introduce this question. What's the end game? What is, so, so if what you hope happens happened, what would that mean for persons who don't have health care or may be in danger of losing their health care, persons of minority, minority religious faith groups, persons whose communities have been over-policed and, and the like? What does that mean for them? One of the concerns I have as I hear people I read, read a lot, somewhat from the right, but also from the left, is I, I find myself asking, so if that program followed through, where would you put the people who so disagree, you so disagree with, you know, is, is this, is this like I sometimes read in the newspaper, if you're a liberal in Oklahoma, you're in the wrong place, you're supposed to, you know, go to Portland, where you, where you can have your own kind, you know, and then in the great sort, there is this sorting going on in the country of going, you know, going to more liberal places if you're a liberal, going to more conservative places if you're conservative. All right, so is it that? Is it, is it really you're talking about some form of exile or extermination or creating a permanent minority, a permanent political minority. I mean, one of the things our founders were so concerned about was, was to keep the kind of kaleidoscope of American interests, factions, and sects turning so that there always would be a changing coalition so that you wouldn't create a permanent political minority because that's a formula for revolution. When people feel like I, you know, I'm, I, I have no legislative options, I have no civil discourse options. I, I, my vote doesn't count anymore, and somebody's going to start putting their foot on my throat. So, those are the two things, I guess. I would, you know, try first. Can you understand, and in in a way that not only that you think you understand, but that the person you're talking with feels understood, and then asking that question about so where does that ha- where does that where is that if if what you wanted actually happened, what would be the result for? And then name a group that maybe you feel like would be threatened by that mm-hmm. and see if you can open more conversation about that. And hopefully there's enough goodness and enough people that you can see that, well, I want, to, I want that for my family. But in order to have it for my family, really it means that it has to be reciprocal. It has to be a reciprocal option or opportunity. Otherwise, it's not really fair. And don't have that conversation on Facebook. <laughs> you can't have that conversation yeah. nope. on Facebook. 
where is the right play? Because it does seem like a lot of this type of discourse, unfortunately, now happens on social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or wherever else. I mean, where is the right place to have these type of conversations? One of the one of the groups, one of the groups that I admire in what they're doing right now. I think they have a big, big goal of depolarizing America. That, you know, <laughs> and that's Better Angels, which is a conversation based program mm-hmm. where they bring together self-identified blues and reds and take them through a protocol for whether it be a, a, a two-hour or four-hour or day-long kind of seminar where the, the protocol is and program is based on, no lie, what a marriage counselor put together for helping deeply conflicted parties simply come to understand each other and humanize each other some. And you, I don't think you can do that apart from face-to-face and, and not, not with surrogates, not with stand-ins, not just with let's role-play this here, but actually having that kind of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And because of the way we've sorted as a society and, and social media, of course, helps drive this now with, you know, finding your, your, smaller and smaller group that where people really agree with me it's making it more and more difficult to have the kind of complex society that we are mm-hmm. so you know workplaces have an opportunity to do this some religious congregations have an opportunity to do this and i'd ask i mean how many conver- how many congregations teach people the skills that we often associate with civil discourse but it really is about, I mean, I always point out to people, civil discourse is not being nice. Mm-hmm. Civil discourse is a way of having difficult conversations about matters that we deeply disagree on, but have to find some way to live with each other. Mm-hmm. That's where you want civil discourse as one of your tools in your toolbox. Not the only one, but it has to be, where do we teach that? I don't think there's enough places where we're teaching that right now. <laughs> no. So I think I, I have no confidence that any of this could be over, done better unless it's done face-to-face. Right. So get out there, people. Meet them face-to-face. We've talked about a few different things, but we, we just want to give you opportunity to plug any upcoming programs or upcoming events just so that we can have it out there and share that information. So do you have anything coming up over the next several months you'd like to talk about? Yes, and something I referenced earlier on in the podcast. So we're going to start a a monthly service mm-hmm. called One From Many. That first, set, first service will be February 2nd, 3 o'clock at Phillips Seminary at 901 North Mingo Road in our chapel, which is a nice non-sectarian space. <laughs> can hold about 200 people. And, and we're going to have a, a, a great time of of introductions and and some singing and some American protest music and 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 some readings from the canon of American civil religion. I mean, stuff like speeches by Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King Jr., Frederick, Frederick Douglass, and the like. Some performance music, a religious leader talking about the kind of country we want to live in and how our faith informs that that vision of a more inclusive, just, compassionate society and the like. And we're going to do that on a monthly basis, at least through the election. Okay. Because we figure, we, we I, I know this, I need support 
in 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 these days and i think there are a lot of people who feel mm-hmm. uh that especially in a place like tulsa or a place like oklahoma where we know we are part of the minority the the, the religious social minority who, who want to see this richer social fabric and and a, a wider circle of who we treat as neighbor mm-hmm. than what we currently have so that would be great and then if people would come to that and where can they find more information about it and find out when future ones are going to right be? so the at the Phillips website, ptstulsa.edu, and then find the Center for Religion and Public Life pages under the menu, and you'll see information there. Okay. Excellent. I imagine it'll also be on OCCJ's OCCJ Facebook is page. Do it. Yep. Yeah. You, you'll get a mailer because they still do that. Um, <laughs> they do. Right. If they have your address, which they don't have mine. So, but I follow their Facebook page. It's fine. <laughs> so, now the final thing, which I always jump ahead of Chris on this one, <laughs> is we ask our guests to sort of look around the Rant 9 Productions uh, nerd cave and find something that either calls to them or something that just is is a curiosity that they want to know what it is and why, why it's here. So we'll give you a minute to look around. You have lots of interesting things. So tell me about your banjo. Ah, my banjo. Okay. So I do not myself play the banjo, <laughs> but I discovered the banjo via the banjo virtuoso Bello Fleck, who I'm who I discovered via the Dave Matthews Band. And it just led me into a sort of musical journey of understanding that an instrument isn't just the genre it normally is associated with. Because when you think of banjo, you think of a very particular kind of of music. And he's able to play jazz. He's played classical. He's made the banjo make noises I didn't think a banjo could make. Mm. And it's just, it's beautiful to me now. So I've been obsessed with the banjo ever since. And so... Just not obsessed enough to learn how to play it. Yeah, well, I've been busy. Uh, (laughs) But one day I'm going to learn. It's a beautiful instrument. Yes, it it is, and you know, it's there's just something very there's something very um, both American and not American about the banjo. Belf like had a documentary on like tracking the history of the banjo and how it actually comes from multiple different continents. The idea of this sort of instrument, and yet, but but the way the banjo is presented to Americans now has a very American history to it, and. I just, I just love it. It feels classic Americana. It does. It It does. And, you know, just the fact that he can play violin concertos on it is just pretty amazing. Wow. One day I will, obviously we'll never be as good as him, but one day I definitely (laughs) want to learn how to play it. First I have to get it repaired. So it is broken, but I just love looking at it. So, so the banjo, which we will get a picture of you holding my banjo. So it's very exciting. So cool. Thank Thank you you again for joining us. Yes. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Thank you all for listening. I know there are countless podcasts out there, and we appreciate you taking time to listen to ours. All the dates and events mentioned in this podcast will be in our show notes. And if you want to share this podcast, the easiest place to find it is on our website, rant9.com. That's R-A-N-T, the number nine, dot com. We like numbers here. And if you want to help us continue to make this show, please buy us a cup of coffee. Link also in our show notes. Get done, Tulsa. Tulsa.